You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. You're listening to Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hi everyone, I'm Jason and I'm the podcast's executive producer and part of the IOE's digital content team. I'm Tatiana, I'm an advisor for the series and also the IOE's Research Impact Manager. And I'm Amy, series producer and audio editor. We work behind the scenes for research for the real world. Hey team, are you also just as shocked as I am that it's almost the end of 2020? It just seems like there are more surprises still in store. Yeah, it's been a year truly like no other. And we do hope that the chat between our presenters and academics from the IOE has provided you with much needed insights to help you make sense of what's taken place this year. So this episode is going to be a producer's cut, where we'll bring you clips of our favourite episodes that we think you should be paying attention to. Tatiana, would you like to start? Sure. So I've nominated Professor Alice Sullivan from the Social Research Institute to start with. Books have been a lifelong love of mine and part of some great childhood memories. Alice Sullivan's research evidences that children who read for pleasure are likely to do better at school and be more socially, culturally, and emotionally prepared for life. I invite our listeners to enjoy her podcast and consider joining the Book Trust Appeal this festive season so vulnerable children can receive a special book to bring some sparkle to their lives. I mean, of course, by definition, you cannot force people to read for pleasure. But I do think it's teachable or at least encourageable in the sense that you can help people. You can you can model reading for pleasure, as we've talked about, and you can read to children when they're young and you can help them to find the right books and encourage them to have the space to do it as well. I think kids nowadays are so incredibly busy with all the activities that they do and all the homework and so on and so forth. I'm close in age to the 1970 cohort and obviously you had you had a lot of time as a kid when you were just bored stiff <laughs> and actually maybe there was a value in that because then you do turn to books yeah. and perhaps you know maybe we're all going to kind of rediscover that a little bit in the current crisis with the virus that's keeping us all at home. And lots of people homeschooling their kids and looking for something that their kids can do indoors. Actually, maybe we can turn this around and see a big increase in reading for pleasure. There's an opportunity here, perhaps. I must ask you about the nature of the large scale research that you do at the IOE. First, can you tell us about your journey towards doing this type of research? I did my PhD in sociology at Oxford University and I was interested in cultural capital, something we call cultural capital, which is about things like reading, but the the kinds of cultural activities that that some people do that perhaps particularly uh, highly educated people do at home that might actually help them to do well in the education system or help their kids to do well in the education system. So I was interested in that. I went out and did a survey, constructed my own questionnaire and did a survey in schools and went into four schools and got, you know, a pretty decent sized sample, 500 kids. 
which is quite a lot of data for one person to collect. But then when I left Oxford, I got a job at the Institute as a research officer and started working on these enormous data sets. For example, BCS70 has started off with about 17,000 people in it and, and the same for the 1958 cohort. And of course, we also have the Millennium cohort, children born around 2000. So we have all these birth cohort studies and I started working on those. There are several advantages really. One is that you have data on the same people throughout their whole lives so that you can track change in their lives, which obviously is something we exploited within the Reading for Pleasure work because there have been a lot of studies that just said, well, yeah, smart kids read more, but they couldn't tell what the change was over time and the fact that actually the kids that were reading more were actually making bigger gains over time. Um, another advantage is obviously the, just the sheer scale, the, the numbers that you have, but also how rich the data is. Uh, so you have so many different aspects of people's lives, not just things like reading and education, but also if you wanted to link that to health outcomes, for example, you could because we know all about their physical health, their mental health, their family circumstances, um, so many things. So it's just a fantastically rich resource, which researchers from a whole range of disciplines, economics, sociology, epidemiology, can all use to answer a really wide range of different research questions. And I just want to say a big thank you actually to the cohort members that make it all possible because we go back to them every few years and make them do these long questionnaires and they give up their time just, you know, for the science. So that's amazing. That was Professor Alice Sullivan on her episode about Reading for Pleasure, Season 1, Episode 2. Okay, I'm next. My first nomination is Dr. Tajendra Farali. He's a part of the Centre for Education and International Development. Besides working for the IOE, I also work as a journalist in News and Current Affairs. I found it really interesting to hear about how students are working through the issues of homeschooling from across the world in spaces which don't traditionally use the internet as their main source of learning. I think it serves as a reminder that our colonialist past shouldn't dictate these communities' futures. Many low-income countries are already providing distance education, and this is good, but the scale of access and levels of outcomes are, you know, very unknown. For example... Online education, the use of mobile apps, use of online resources and online learning platforms. These tools have been used, uh, you know, particularly in the MENA region in, in Jordan and Lebanon. There's a lot of use of digital tools to support learning for particularly for refugee children. Uh, but now the governments are, uh, you know, encouraging the use of these tools in all the education sector. For example, in, in Nepal, where I work, on community radios have been used as, as a broadcasting media in delivering educational lessons, but also, most importantly, providing health information to mass population. In other countries, uh, there's, there are television programs as well being provided to continue learning and, and, and teaching. But I think what is really important, uh, as I was saying earlier, is to develop a short-term how-to-keep-students-learning plan and then at the same time work on the long-term plans, so how to plan for opening schools safely. Because it's important to accept that the society will not get back to the normal routine that we had before this pandemic anytime soon. What we're experiencing now is likely to be the new normal unless the risk of spread of virus is completely controlled. 
So it is very important to remember that children who are most vulnerable are likely to be the worst hit during this crisis because children with disabilities, those who are living in poverty, those who live in remote areas, those who are ethnic and cultural minorities and refugee children I was talking about earlier are likely to be disadvantaged from this provision of online teaching and learning. And therefore, the authorities and institutions need to be particularly mindful about how to ensure uh, that nobody is uh, left out of these uh, new approaches to education. And that's why I think uh, uh, there must be a government policy and a strategy where television and radio programs or online programs are designed and delivered, and particularly local authorities uh, can collaborate with local teachers uh, and community radios to produce and broadcast um, educational programs. So this is going to, I think, increase a lot of costs in, in some ways, but also is going to require different sets of skills on the part of teachers and educational policymakers and authorities who would require to organize these educational contents according to learning objectives, because just by providing access to resources is not going to lead to any meaningful learning. So they need to, I think, collaborate with the private sector, NGOs and INGOs who have the experience and expertise to deliver a distance education. If you would like to hear from Dr. Tajendra Farali, you'll find him on Season 3, Episode 4. So, for my first pick, I'm nominating Dr. Kate Cowan, who is an Honorary Senior Research Fellow at the UCL Knowledge Lab. I'm not sure if you're aware that there's a secret world of child's play out there, or actually, maybe not so secret. Kate does research on children's play inside and outside of the classroom. I particularly found fascinating when she discussed how current affairs manages to find its way into children's play, and that children may often do this to help them make sense of what's happening in the world around them. Have a listen. So at the moment, what we've got is sort of anecdotal evidence, anecdotal stories about what's been happening. But it certainly seems like the virus has become a theme in children's play in some instances. So We've heard examples of children playing kind of coronavirus tag, you know, so you're pretending to pass on the virus. <laughs> I think that featured in The Guardian as one of the letters. And there was also a survey done in Ireland recently of parents of children aged 0 to 10. And they said that, you know, there was a lot of playing doctors, playing dead, playing building hospitals, even with kind of ventilators made out of Lego, things like that. Close attention to like washing their dolls' hands. And so definitely I think we're seeing traditional play we would expect to see traditional play kind of adapting and responding to the social context that it's happening in. So play is being a, a sort of way that children are exploring these new and maybe troubling ideas, but keeping them at kind of a safe distance through their play. And then we're also seeing examples of kind of new games and adaptations of games. So I think just before children went into lockdown, there were stories of, you know, playing things like shadow tag. So rather than actually physically touching each other, because that was you know, becoming a problem, they were tagging each other's shadows so they could keep at a distance and playing games like helicopter tag as well, where apparently you stretch your arms out wide in order to make sure that you're keeping a safe distance from one another. So really inventive kind of responses to the restrictions on play. And then also there's the whole kind of strand of online play and digital play. You know, while you're physically restricted, you can, most children have access to 
digital tools that will and technologies that will support different kinds of play. So we've been hearing about games playing played across Zoom with grandparents and relatives. So hiding the iPad somewhere and playing hide and seek with your family while they're on Zoom. Or doing like a version of Kim's game where you turn off your camera, then you change something in the background behind you and you see if the other person at the other end can spot what it was. So I'm just always constantly amazed, I suppose, by the adaptability and the evolution of, of games. And lockdown has been particularly interesting to me, but we're, we're still working out exactly how best to access it. I think that's fascinating because it shows the imagination and the creativity to adapt to something which is mm-hmm. which is very serious. Mm-hmm. And it seems not to be too intimidated by it mm-hmm. either. I mean, you know, the, the idea of a global pandemic, you know, it could be quite, it could be very scary for children. But they, I wonder whether any of this is a bit of a coping mechanism, you know, part of them trying to sort of just process this very different world. And even if they don't get, the virus they still have to you know adhere to the, the social distancing and so on whether any of this is just yeah. sort of a, a a way of you know just coping I think so yeah I think you're right I think that play is interesting because it's sort of got one foot in the real world and one foot in an imaginary pretend world and that's a very interesting kind of liminal in-between space that means that you can play with with ideas kind of safely because you can step back out of them and say well let's just play so yeah play is absolutely used in kind of therapy and treat you know dealing with anxiety and trauma and that sort of thing and has been done for for a long time and I think it's it would absolutely be plausible to think that's going on right now that children are using play as a means of safely and yes they're using play as a means of safely understanding and exploring and responding to some quite troubling ideas at the moment curious about Dr. Kate Cowan's work? You can hear the rest of her thoughts on season four, episode five. I think out of all of our choices for this episode, I'm picking the only academic who isn't directly part of the IOE. Chris McManus is a professor of psychology and medical education. As a social sciences student, I'm not well versed in medical education. And to be honest, I don't know a whole lot about it. I thought it was really interesting to learn more about how the cohort of 2020 would be impacted by the pandemic environment they invite strangers in just to walk around and what in fact we have suggested that they need some anthropologists in there to observe the culture that's developing it's like a strange culture they have got in there early what they're doing i don't know but if you look at the traditional foundation one doctor the thing they normally start in august then it's very much an apprenticeship there they're doing quite a lot of things but of course they haven't got much experience they're only just for the first time learning to prescribe properly and all that sort of stuff. Yes. They haven't got a lot of technical skills. They're not very good at sticking tubes into strange places, and which a lot of medicine is about. You know, they know they'll be exposed to quite a lot, but quite what they're doing, I'm not sure. And I think that's something we need to be finding out. It's not very easy to find out at the moment. We, probably in six months, a year's time, we can ask them what they were doing. It's, they're not going to answer our questionnaires at the moment, I, I assume. Every pair of hands is needed. I've got no doubt about that. What the effects are on them, I don't know. I've seen some surprisingly sort of threatened comments by them. This isn't what medicine was meant to be about for me. And, you, you know, and that raises the issue of, well, what did they see they were going to be doing in medicine? And of course, the other thing about medicine is it's a, a mansion with many rooms. 
Most doctors can't do everything and wouldn't want to do everything. They rapidly find a, a room where they like doing what goes on there. And they may be a pathologist, they may be a neurosurgeon, they may be a psychiatrist, they may be a public health physician. And to be thrust into it so quickly, into a bit they may not like at all, may actually have very negative effects. Certainly in the old days when people had to do six-month surgery, they, mm -hmm. they said the one thing that doing six-month surgery has done is to teach me I never, ever want to be a surgeon. <laughs> others fell in love with it gosh absolutely my sister does say things like that as well in the end she settled on renal medicine so she's very busy with that but I mean these medical students I wonder what kind of support they're getting and I mean do you have any kind of idea about yes. this like what kind of support or who they might be able to reach out to no I have little idea and I don't know of much research going on into it I think it's interesting, though, to think of the military metaphors that keep coming up the whole time. We're fighting a war, they're on the front line. And, but of course, if you think about who actually in a war fights on the front line, those are people who've been trained to work together as a team, small units and medium-sized units up to regiments and that sort of thing. They train together for many months and years before they finally go into battle. When they're in battle, they typically have two, three weeks on a front line, then they're withdrawn for rest and recreation, and they're supported a lot. And yet still, they have vast amounts of post-traumatic stress disorder. And Now, I'm not sure that in the battle that appears to be going on at the moment, whether there's any of that infrastructure there to support their needs. And remember, most of that came because in the First World War, they realized they were suffering badly. The Second World War was a lot better than that. And they begun to put people in the right places. The ones who wanted to be on the front line were there. Not entirely, but there was much more of that. And of course, in places like Vietnam first, then Afghanistan, much, much more of that. And I'm not sure we've quite learned that. And in fact, what's happened in hospitals over in just an ordinary practice in the, the last 25 years is we've lost much of the team structure we used to have. They keep reorganizing it. They got rid of firms, as they were called. So where you have, you know, 10 people working together for six months at a time. There's now, you know, people keep rotating around. There's a lot less support than there ever was. And I think we're beginning to realise that that's not actually helping the doctors. But, you know, these are complex questions. I also recommend listening to his episode. You can find Chris on Season 2, Episode 4. OK, my turn. I must mention our Season 5 episode with Dr Victoria Shawonmi. As producers of content, we have a responsibility to ensure that our platforms allow for diverse voices. Victoria, she gives a really passionate account of her work examining intersectionality, gender identity and race in the context of leadership. And in the era of COVID-19, Me Too and Black Lives Matter, it's never been more important. To me, it's really looking at the, the structural and oppression around some equality characteristics. So you hear people talking about intersectionality in one sentence and not actually unpacking it. Intersectionality is a talking about, in fact, the reason why race and gender fits in with that is because when you look at gender, it is around those policy procedures and structural inequalities within organisations and society. And the same thing with race. So when you bring the two together, a woman which is black has got double barrel, you know, double concepts of complexity of trouble, basically. And so and then, of course, then you add class to it as well. And that's what I mean by an inter is an intersectional is an intersect where you take it and you look at what's the core 
in that court is an intersectional aspect of trying to understand what's happening. I remember talking to Michael Arthur some time ago, and again, I was bold. I went and had a meeting with him in his office, and he was talking to me about all the different things he'd done for women, and we were talking about it. So I sat there listening, and I said, okay, that's really interesting. So what about, what are you doing for black women? He said, oh, that's an interesting question. I said, yes. You've got to understand the intersectional aspect of gender. You can't feel that you're doing all this stuff for women, but what are you actually doing for women which look like me? And they said that no one had ever said that to him. So I think it's being able to talk about it, but not use it as like the, the, the overuse of the word like diversity, which means everything. I think we have to be clear when we're working with research, when we're working with students, when we're using the term intersectional, we're using it in the context of what's happened and why we need to use it to describe issues around gender. I'm glad you said that because, you know, you're right. Words like diversity have become so diluted. And I don't know, everywhere I look and turn, I see the word intersectional being used at the moment. But, you know, the word has meaning and it has context. And I I kind of really relate to what you just said and how you described uh, the importance of being careful with the use of the term. I have a question. I was reading about your search and, and I want to know what the Black Girls Club is. Yeah, thank you. I am really, really, really passionate about Black Girls. My first degree, when I first came to London, I was I was bushy-eyed. I worked in Scotland as well, so I've kind of been all over the country. But um, I remember being so bushy-eyed, thinking, oh, my God, there's so many black people. I've never never seen so many because I lived in Somerset and, and Kent and never saw black people before in my life. And so and I, I remember getting a job in one of the colleges, which was, I didn't realise it was rather a posh college, but there was four sites, and one of the sites was in Battersea. And on the course, one of the courses, there was just a whole range of just black students and in the college. And um, people didn't want to talk about these students. So I did I did a piece of research on the voices of black girls in further education. And I wanted to know what was happening. And that's continued. Now, doing the work in schools, again, I'm, I'm sorry I'm giving you a, a backdrop. I just have to give you a tiny backdrop. I apologise. So I wanted to do, I was very interested in mental health and well-being of young women. And I was asking questions about it, but there was no research done on black girls. There was research done on black boys and black men and migrant women, but not black girls. So put that to one side. So I then went to some schools and said, look, I really wanted to look at what's going on with your black girls. I'm really interested in this because I think it has an impact on how they're doing entertainment. So I got involved with a couple of schools and one of the school, well, both schools, I, I was doing focus groups and um, one of the schools I was meeting every single week and they said, you know, let's, you know, let's have a name for this. I said, what would you like to call it? And one girl came up with a name called the Black Girls Club. And so that's what we called it. It was a club. And I realised more and more that black girls do not have the space to talk about themselves. There was Victoria Shalomi. She was on the first episode of season five. We hope you enjoyed our highlights. And if you didn't have a listen to these episodes before, maybe you have a listen to one or two. And there is also more than enough to get you through to next year. Just search for IOE podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the past six seasons. So if you haven't already, it would be great if you could fill out our two-minute survey. You'll find the link in the show notes. And lastly, thank you for listening and subscribing to Research for the Real World. 
So enjoy the rest of the year, look after yourselves, drink as much water as you can, and we hope you'll join us in 2021. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 